Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Titan Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing pretty well. I've been thinking a lot lately about the first Terminator movie. You know, the good one. And it always kind of bugged me that there's this robot who's from the future, who's super advanced, who can expertly mimic any voice that it hears, but his default setting is English, but with a really thick Austrian accent. That seems like a very specific programming choice, and it was one that never really made a ton of sense to me, until today. I think I've actually finally cracked the code on this. See, I bet with earlier models, they programmed them to speak with the regional accent of whatever area they had been deployed to. But they're still robots, and the programming isn't going to be perfect, so it would stand out more that they didn't understand societal norms if they were clearly from that area. So by the time they're programming the T-1000, they're like, hey, here's a quick workaround we can do. Let's give our murder bot an audio signifier that they're not from around here. Then when he does something weird and robot-y, people will just be like, huh, I guess Austrians are weird and robot-y which would have the added benefit from an evil robot standpoint of contributing to an atmosphere of xenophobia, which will make the human race more likely to wipe itself out. Pretty clever, evil robots. But here's where I think their plan has room for improvement. There's not a 0% chance that this robot's gonna run into some actual Austrians, and they'll be like, hey, we don't walk around parking lots naked. This guy's a weirdo. So what the robots should do is program their murder bots with a made-up accent from a country that doesn't actually exist. Anyway, this has all been my way of telling you about how I discovered that Balki Bartakamus from Perfect Strangers is in fact an evil robot from the future who was about to destroy all of mankind, but then Cousin Larry taught him how to love. Thank you for attending my TED Talk. Don't forget to stop by the merch booth on your way out. TED Talks have merch booths, right? Anyway, we have a double-sized issue that we're covering today, so we should probably get into it. Without any further ado, let's, uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Andrew Jefferson. Kurt Connor is a purple-panted herpetologist, but he's not in this story, so here's a synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Andrew. Defenders number 100. Wow. October 1981. Hell on Earth. Written by J.M. DeMatteis, drawn by Don Perlin, painted by Joe Sinnott, and Al Milgram, and Frank Giacoa, and Jack Abel, and Sal Trapiani, lettered by Janice Chiang and Shelley Lefferman, Colored by George Rousos, and edited by Al Milgram and Jack Abel. Defensive lineup Son of Satan, Hellcat, Doctor Strange, Nighthawk, Valkyrie, Devil Slayer, Gargoyle, Clea, The Incredible Hulk, 
Namor the Submariner, and the Silver Surfer. Previously in the Defenders. An indeterminate amount of comic book time ago, Damon Hellstrom, aka Son of Satan, was performing a routine exorcism when he heard about an organization called the Six-Fingered Hand, which was plotting against the Defenders. This malevolent metacarpus was a sextet of minor demons who had recently gained enormous power when they moved in together to live as finger puppets on a giant evil palm. Damon hurried off to warn our titular non-team about this infernal threat, but got distracted by a pair of existential threats to the universe, which he teamed up with the Defenders to thwart. By the time the Devil Daddy Do-Gooder remembered to warn the gang about their fiendish phalangeal foes, the Six-Fingered Hand had already launched a two-pronged assault against the unsuspecting heroes. First, the demonic digits zapped Nighthawk, aka Kyle Richmond, with a spell that left him paralyzed during daylight hours. At night, the billionaire duel bird enthusiast was still as strong as two strong men, but this mystical assault created a serious scheduling conflict for his crime-fighting activities, so Kyle decided to take some time off from Defendersing. For its second attack, the Maleficent Meathook targeted Patsy Walker, aka Hellcat. Patsy was at home grieving the death of her mother Dorothy when the Hand sent a gargoyle to kidnap the cat-costumed crime fighter and blow up her house. The gargoyle dragged Patsy to a small town in Virginia and performed a ritual which allowed a demon named Avarish to take over her body. The rest of the Defenders showed up to rescue their beleaguered buddy, but a possessed Patsy kicked all of their asses. Eventually, Valkyrie managed to friendship Hellcat back to her old self, and Stephen Damon performed a hasty exorcism. But during her possession, Patsy learned that her recently departed mother had attempted to forestall her death by selling Patsy's soul to demons which was a real bummer. The gang confronted the gargoyle who had kidnapped their feline friend and learned that his name was Isaac Christensen and that he was a local octogenarian dabbler in the dark arts who had made an ill-advised deal with Avarish. In exchange for economic prosperity for his beloved hometown, Isaac had allowed himself to be turned into a gargoyle and had agreed to abduct Patsy. Now Ike was trapped in this body and felt crummy about what a jerk he had been. The gang accepted Isaac's half-assed apology and invited him to join their non-team. The conditionally contrite kidnapper gratefully accepted the offer. Next, the gang enlisted the aid of their old ally Devil Slayer, aka Eric Simon Payne. Devil Slayer was an aspirationally named adventurer who was a Vietnam veteran who had been tricked into joining an evil cult whose dogma was loosely based on the lyrics of Blue Oyster Cult songs. Eric had eventually turned on the cult, but not before acquiring a magic cape that let him teleport and from which he could retrieve any weapon. With their ranks thus bolstered, the defenders spent the next several weeks frantically teleporting around the globe, thwarting various members of the Six-Fingered Hand. During a few of these encounters, Patsy suffered from temporary relapses of demonic possession. While these bouts of bedevilment were relatively brief, they were nevertheless unsettling. Eventually, the gang found a dimensional rift in Florida which had been opened in part by the reality-weakening magics Steve had been forced to expend in recent battles. Determined to confront the Hand in their home dimension and finish off the monstrous mitt once and for all, the Defenders stepped through this rip in reality. Well, most of the Defenders did at any rate. Once they had stepped into the void, Devil Slayer noticed that Patsy had swiped his magic cape and skedaddled. But the gang had little time to dwell on this unsettling garment theft because they soon found themselves in the lair of the Six-Fingered Hand. The heroes were about to attack their infernal adversaries when the Hand's leader, a leeringly loquacious demon named Maya, revealed that the Hand had taken a number of the Defenders' friends and allies hostage. 
That number was four, and the captives in question were Clea, the Hulk, Namor, and the Silver Surfer, each of whom were sealed in domes of demonic energy. Once the defenders were cowed into compliance by threats to their captured comrades, Maya led the heroes on a tour of the fucked-up dimension he lived in. The demons had transported the town of Citrusville, Florida to their world, and transformed its citizens into faceless homunculi, and its geography into a twisted hellish parody of a carnival. The defenders weren't thrilled about these alterations, but their hands were tied as long as their pals were in danger, so Gargoyle snuck off and used the hellborn powers of his new body to free the Hulk, the Surfer, Namor, and Clea. Hooray! Once the rest of the gang saw that their buddies were safe, they all teamed up to kick the shit out of all the demons. Hooray! Or not so hooray. Because just when the forces of darkness seemed done for, Maya started laughing his ass off. Is the leader of the hand the kind of evil jerk who gets off on seeing his buddies get beat up? Probably, but that wasn't the only reason he was so pleased. The demon's image started to shimmer, and within seconds, in place of the minor demon, stood a major devil. Mephisto. Mephisto was one of the Marvel Universe's more prominent stand-ins for Satan. The Beelzebubian baddie explained to the dumbfounded defenders that the six-fingered hand were just a bunch of chumps that he and his true partners had duped into getting the defenders to expend enough energy to weaken the bonds of reality. This latest battle had been the tipping point, and now Mephisto and his pals could get to Earth and do whatever the fuck they wanted with it. As he explained the details of this overly complicated evil scheme, Mephisto sealed the heroes into a giant pill-shaped container made out of devil powers or whatever. The Lucifer look-alike continued to heap the hapless heroes with both derision and exposition as he flew the enormous pill through the cosmos and transported them all back to Earth. As the rest of the defenders were unwillingly attending Mephisto's masterclass on gloating, Hellcat was back on Earth doing some hero transportation of her own. Patsy used the purloined shadow cloak to teleport over to the penthouse apartment where Kyle was convalescing telling the diurnally disabled do-gooder that she knew a guy who could patch him up real good, Hellcat hoisted the bedridden billionaire over one shoulder and teleported him off to meet with this mysterious benefactor. Moments later, the duo of defenders stood at the foot of a huge earthen throne. Perched atop the seat was a big red-horned dude. Mephisto? But wasn't he with the other heroes? Yup. This diabolical dude was a different version of the devil. Patsy told a stupefied Kyle to say hello to the dad of the son of Satan, which is to say, Satan. What? Two versions of the devil in a single comic book? No, try four. Because when Mephisto and his cosmic capsule of costumed heroes arrived on Earth, they found themselves greeted not only by Satan, Kyle, and a demoned-up Hellcat, but flanking Satan were two more of Marvel's devil doppelgangers, the flaming-headed Satan-ish, and Man-Thing's frequent fiendish foe, Thog. It turned out that the Machiavellian masterminds behind the six-fingered hand was this foursome of facsimile fallen angels all along. Gadzooks! Now that he has four targets to choose from, will Devil Slayer finally live up to his name? What hellish fate awaits our heroes at the hands of this League of Substitute Satans? And will this issue once again depict a defender being forced to attend a carnival? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... Nope. Riddle-solving and awkward family reunions. 
And come on. The title of the issue is Hell on Earth. Of course there's a carnival. The defenders gaze around Times Square and are not too stoked about the changes Satan and his Satanettes have made to the place. Everywhere they look, they see tortured souls preyed upon by corrupt beings who feed on their sins and exploit their weaknesses. And apparently the Satan Squad has done something to the area as well. Doctor Strange is pretty freaked out to learn that Satan, Mephisto, Thog, and Satanish are all working together. He also feels like a chump that it was his expenditure of magical energy that made their envision of the Earth's realm possible. Silver Surfer manages to get Steve to chill out a little bit. But Son of Satan, Hulk, and Namor are pretty unchilloutable right now. The trio of irascible adventurers make a beeline towards Satan with ill intentions on their respective minds. Satan seems unimpressed. He's like, Hey Patsy, be a dear and take care of these ruffians, will you? Patsy's like, No problem. Hellcat, who is now both more hellish and more cat-like, gestures vaguely towards the incoming heroes, and the three immediately start convulsing in pain. Patsy is like, I just zazzed him with my new power, the ability to turn any latent evil within a person against him. Neat, huh? Oh, jeez, where are my manners? Thank you for the new powers, Dad. Wait, what? The assembled heroes are dumbfounded by this unexpected revelation that Damon is not the only defender with diabolical DNA in their infernal ancestry. They're all like, wait, what? Yeah, I feel you guys. Satan starts chuckling and is like, Heh, yeah, Patsy's my daughter. That's probably subconsciously why she chose the name Hellcat. That's just how comic book names work. Submariner, I'm pretty sure eventually you're going to find out that at least one of your parents is a footlong sandwich. Steve is like, But, but how is that possible? Satan is like, Well, when a fishman loves a sandwich very much. Oh, you mean the Patsy being my daughter thing? Well, it's a long story, but here goes. A couple of decades ago, I dressed up like a human and married Patsy's mom. Then we had sex. Nine months later, Patsy was born. Huh, guess it wasn't such a long story after all. Go figure. Anyway, it's probably because of me that she's so good at fighting and stuff. Plus, her mom Dorothy could probably sense that she was genetically evil, which is why she didn't feel so bad about trying to sell her daughter's soul to demons. Or else Dorothy was just kind of a jerk and a shitty mom. But hey, who am I to judge? I'm the devil! Valkyrie turns to Patsy and is like, Look, Patsy, I don't care how much of an asshole your dad is. I mean, have you met Odin? The point is, I'm your friend no matter what. I friendshiped you out of being evil once, and I'll do it again. Patsy is like, Nah, and slaps the shit out of Valkyrie. Dang. This jolts Nighthawk out of the stupor he had been in ever since Patsy dragged him before her alleged devil dad. The addled avian aficionado is like, What the fuck, Patsy? Val was just trying to friend at you. You don't smack someone for that. You just act super awkward and distant because you think they're hitting on you. Patsy is like, Ah, uh, fuck you too, Kyle. She picks Nighthawk up over her head and throws him at the rest of the defenders. Fortunately, the Hulk has recovered from Patsy's assault by now and is able to pluck the plutocrat projectile out of the air before anyone is seriously injured. Son of Satan attacks his dad, but Satan's like, Oh, that's cute, and casually zaps his enraged offspring unconscious. Thog, Satanish, and Mephisto were like, 
so you need a hand with these guys or anything? But Satan's like, nah, I got this. Hey, Steve, I know I've already won and there's nothing you can do to oppose me at this point, but just for funsies, how about an ill-defined contest where if you win, me and my pals fuck off forever and leave the earth alone? Steve is like, hmm, a wager with the devil with the fate of the earth on the line? Tempting. What are the rules? Satan is like, I don't know. How about I make them up as I go along and change them as I see fit? Steve is like, deal. Damn it, Steve. Satan is like, okay, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to split you guys up into three teams. Each team is going to go up against a different member of my Satan society. If you can unleash the light in the darkness, you win. Steve is like, Okay, couple of questions. One, what the fuck does that mean? And B, so does just one team have to accomplish this nebulous task, or all three of them, or best two out of three? Satan is like, A, I don't know, and two, whatever. He snaps his fingers, and instantly everyone except himself, Damon, and Patsy disappear. The Hulk, Namor, and Doctor Strange suddenly find themselves in Rutland, Vermont the site of one of their first adventures as Defenders. Steve is like, Hmm, this looks like the place where we fought all those cultists who are worshipping Dormammu, but something seems different. Namor is like, Well, there is that giant set of devil hands poking up out of the top of that mountain. I'm pretty sure that's new. Steve is like, Hmm, yes, that's probably it. Hmm, those giant hands are on fire, so I bet they probably belong to Satanish. He must be the version of the devil that we have to fight. Now, how are we supposed to unleash the light in the darkness? Hulk is like, don't know, don't care. Hulk is going to go smash devil hands. And with that, the bounding behemoth starts leaping towards the mountain. Namor is like, yeah, I'm with Hulk on this one and leaps off after his emerald ally. Reluctantly, Steve follows his non-teammates. Once they reach the mountain, a bunch of cultists in purple robes attack the titanic trio. Unlike the Dormammu worshippers from their initial excursion to Rutland, these robed reprobates have superhuman strength and demonic faces. One of them bonks Steve on the noodle and knocks him out, but Namor and the Hulk don't notice. The two powerhouse protagonists beat up the robed demons and start making their way towards the cavern in the center of the mountain where they figure Satanish is probably hanging out. When they reach the mouth of the cave, they're confronted by a pair of familiar faces. Why, it's Zemnu the Titan and Yandroth the Man Machine, villains they first faced in the pages of Marvel Feature before the Defenders even had their own title. Zemnu is a super-strong furry jerk from space, and Yandroth is a dead scientist who stuck his soul into a giant evil robot that was supposed to blow up the world or something. Hulk and Namor kind of look at each other, shrug, and then commence to smashing. Meanwhile, outside of the mountain, Steve is just waking up from his bonk-induced snooze. Figuring that he's too slow to catch up to his clobbering-prone comrades, Steve sends his astral projection after them. By the time Astral Steve reaches the center of the mountain, it's too late. A giant Satanish is holding an unconscious Namor and Hulk in each hand. Wait, an unconscious Namor and Hulk in each hand? Did I parse that sentence wrong? Probably. But there do appear to be two Namors and two Hulks, and all four of them are being dangled over a pool of lava. 
Satanish gloats that if Steve is unable to determine which set of his friends is the genuine article, then they will all die. Then he lets the four bodies tumble from his huge Satanesque hands. Thinking quickly, Steve turns on the Eye of Agamotto. The magic bauble's light reveals one set of the seeming heroes was actually Yandroth and Zemnu in disguise. Steve lets the villains fall to their doom and uses a spell to snag Hulk and Namor out of the air. As he pulls them to safety, Astral Steve thinks to himself, Hmm, it's pretty dark in this cave, but the Eye of Agamotto made a light so I could see who's who. I must have solved Satan's riddle. Good for me. But no sooner has he thought this than Satanish blows up the volcano and incinerates all four heroes. Oops. Meanwhile, Satan has taken his kids to a dive bar in hell for a little family bonding. Patsy is getting into the spirit of things and dancing around while enjoying a mug of flaming lava which is presumably alcoholic, but Damon isn't feeling it. He angrily throws his mug of lava on the floor. His dad's like, Come on, buddy. I know you want to go join your buddies and help them fight my buddies, but that's a super bad idea, because your buddies are all gonna die. Patsy is like, Yeah, Damon, listen to Dad. Now come over here so we can make out and stuff. Damn it, Patsy! Damon is like, Ew, no, gross! Then he backhands Patsy. Damn it, Damon! Satan is like, Hey there, sport. You're just missed because you're in love with her, and now that you know she's your sister, you think that means you shouldn't smooch her and stuff. But it's not fair to take that out on her. Besides, I'm Satan. You can do whatever freaky Lannister stuff you want. I don't give a shit. Damn it, Satan! Damien Hellstrom hangs his head in shame. You know, I'm starting to think this family might be just the tiniest bit dysfunctional. Meanwhile... Gargoyle, Devil Slayer, and Nighthawk find themselves in the midst of a calamitous war zone. Soldiers from every army from every era in history frantically battle each other with no apparent rhyme or reason, while Thog flies above them astride a huge winged demon, whipping all of the combatants into a frenzy. Gargoyle is wearing the helmet from his World War I uniform and carrying a rifle affixed with a bayonet. Devil Slayer is wearing a camouflage hat and jacket over his usual bodysuit and is carrying the machine gun that he used in his tours in Vietnam. Kyle, on the other hand, is dressed in his usual bird suit and is carrying his draft deferment card he got because of a heart murmur he used to suffer from. He's puzzling over the significance of this when a bunch of dead soldiers who were killed in the Vietnam War roll up on him. They're like, must be nice to be rich. Maybe if we had rich dads, we could have gotten out of the draft too. But we didn't, so now we're dead. They start clawing at Kyle, who feels too guilty to defend himself. Eric and Isaac shoo off the zombie soldiers and tell Kyle to stop feeling bad about his past and help them go beat up Thog. Kyle does his best to shake it off, but he's still feeling pretty crummy. Together, the defenders try to battle their way through the myriad of armies Thog has assembled. Eric has just shot a bunch of soldiers from the Crimean and Napoleonic Wars when he is confronted by a horrifying sight. A group of small children who are battered and badly injured appear before him and tell him that soldiers like him killed lots of kids like them in Vietnam, and doesn't he feel shitty about that? Damn. Eric does indeed feel shitty about that. He stops fighting and is immediately swarmed by Vikings and Prussian troops who soon overwhelm the guilt-ridden veteran. Isaac is acquitting himself well against Thog's armies when he suddenly sees a familiar face. 
It is a young, freckle-faced World War I soldier named Buster Henderson. Buster was Ike's best friend, until he was shot through the heart in a trench in France. Buster is like, Man, fuck you, Isaac. It's not fair that you got to be old while I died as a teenager. You suck. Isaac is like, You raise a good point, Buster. I do kind of suck. Overcome by survivor's guilt, Gargoyle gives himself up to Buster and his dead colleagues. Flying high above the battlefield, Nighthawk sees his friends giving in to their feelings of self-reproach. Suddenly, he has an epiphany. He swoops down into the middle of the fighting and is like, Hey everybody, listen up! Why are you all doing what Thog tells you to do? Look at him! That guy sucks! He's kind of the devil, sort of! Why would you obey him? All the soldiers are like, Huh, that rich asshole with a bird fetish raises a good point. Thog is an asshole. Fuck that guy. Let's go kill him. And just like that, all of the soldiers turn and attack Thog. Hooray! Gargoyle is like, You solved the riddle, Kyle. You unleashed the light of reason into the darkness of ignorance. But then Thog drops a bunch of nuclear bombs on them, and everybody dies. So, you might have put up that mission accomplished banner a little too soon there, Gargoyle. Let's check back in and see how things are going with Satan and his kids. The Prince of Darkness is trying to convince his son Damon to go on a merry-go-round with him. The horses are shaped like fanged lizards, and the carousel is powered by damned souls who are forced to propel the ride by pushing it on spokes as they crawl naked on the ground at a hellish carnival. But other than that, it's kind of a sweet gesture. Patsy seems to be enjoying herself. Damon declines his father's invitation to join them. Satan is like, Aw, oh, come on, son. I know I wasn't always there for you, and I tried to kill you a bunch of times, and I am the devil, but I'm still your father. Damon is like, Why are you doing this to me? Satan is like, Because I want you to join the family business and come rule hell with me, you idiot. And if you don't, then I'm going to eat your soul and torture you for all eternity. It's called tough love. While the devil family is squabbling, Clea, the Silver Surfer, and Valkyrie find themselves floating directionlessly in an endless void. The three heroes are trying to figure out where they are when Mephisto pops up and is like, Hey dummies, wanna sell me your soul? Silver Surfer hops on his board and tries to careen into the soul-mongering Crimson Crumbum, but to no avail, he passes harmlessly through his infernal enemy. Valkyrie tries to aid her chrome-plated comrade-in-arms, but her magic sword swipes right through Mephisto as though the satanic substitute were made out of mist. The sorcerously Scandinavian swordslinger asks what gives, and Clea, who has been floating cross-legged and meditating while her non-teammates went on the offensive, pipes up and is like, I think I know what gives. The three of us aren't from Earth and don't feel as though we really fit in there. Mephisto has manifested our feeling that we don't belong anywhere and has stuck us in a place that is literally nowhere. He is not the one who has no substance here. We are. Mephisto is like, ding, 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 got it in one. Wow, you intuited a lot of exposition there, Clea. Color me impressed. Now, here's my sales pitch. I can make it so that everyone loves you and recognizes what a great sorcerer you are. Steve will not only remember that you exist on a consistent basis, he will also acknowledge you as his sorcerer's superior. How's that grab you? All it'll cost is your soul. 
Clea doesn't answer, but from the look on her face, it seems like the idea grabs her pretty good. Mephisto turns his attention to Valkyrie, and is like, And as for you, how would you like to go back to Asgard and whack stuff with your sword all the time? Sounds pretty fun. Want to trade me your soul for it? Val looks more surprised than enticed, possibly because she turned down an offer to do essentially that a couple of issues ago, and in that version she could have just kept her soul. Unaware that he's starting to lose his audience, Mephisto addresses the Silver Surfer and is like, And Silver Surfer, back when you were called Norrin Rad, didn't you used to have a space girlfriend? I could reunite you guys and you could go on a space road trip or something. How would... Mephisto doesn't get the chance to finish his sales pitch because Surfer cuts him off by blasting him with a bolt of cosmic power. The former Norrin Rad is like, Fuck you, Mephisto, you fucking fuckface! You make me that offer every time I run into you, and it is always bullshit. What is it this time? If I accepted, would it turn out she was a hologram? Or a demon in disguise? Or a swarm of bees shaped like a lady? Mephisto doesn't answer because he's yelping in pain, but I bet it was probably the bee thing. Fucking Mephisto. Valkyrie is like, hey, it looks like that time the surfer's attack hurt him. Clea, you're pretty good at figuring out what's happening without any context clues whatsoever. What gives? Clea is like, well, this is just a guess, but maybe the reason we couldn't impact him before was because we felt like we were insubstantial. But once the surfer thought about his space girlfriend, he was filled with passion, which overcame his indifference to Earth. And maybe... Unleashing the light of passion in the darkness of the void of indifference is how we can defeat our enemy. Valkyrie is like, uh, sure, okay, yeah, let's go with that. Clay and Valkyrie once again attack Mephisto, but this time they do it real zesty-like. And as a result, this time their attacks send the devil doppelganger reeling. Hooray! Once Mephisto is thoroughly pummeled, a small door appears in the far corner of the void. The three heroes hop on Surfer's board and fly towards it. But just as they're about to sail through it, the door slams shut and the heroes blink out of existence. Bummer. A few minutes later, all the Defenders and all the Substitute Satans are back in the hellish version of Times Square from the beginning of the issue. Steve is like, What the fuck is going on? I thought we were all dead. Satan is like, You are, kind of. Or at least you will be. See, it takes six days, six hours, and six minutes for the changes we Satans make on Earth to become permanent. It's a branding thing. Time is flowing a little wonky right now, but the deadline is about three hours away. If we're still in charge when that hourglass runs out, then everything we've done, including your death, is for keeps. Son of Satan is like, Damn it, Dad! You cheated! My friends solved your dumb riddles! Satan is like, well, sort of, but I left the rules a little squidgy, so the way I figure it, they each unleashed a light in the darkness, but not necessarily the light in the darkness. It's the kind of phrasing our lawyers love, and believe me, we've got a lot of lawyers down there. Damon is incensed and yells at his dad a bunch, but Satan has had enough of his son's insolence. He's like, Patsy, I'm tired of your brother's sass. Go murder him, will ya? Patsy is like, okie dokie, and leaps at Hellstrom, intent on ripping his throat out like she was Dalton in Roadhouse. 
Son of Satan easily deflects his purported sister's attack and flings her to the ground. Incandescent with rage, the Satan-spawned superhero raises his trident over his head and prepares to plunge it through Hellcat's heart. But then he pauses. The rage slowly drains from his face, and his expression is replaced with one of great sorrow. Lowering his weapon, Damon admits that he cannot kill Patsy, because during their time in the Defenders, he has fallen in love with her. After he makes this declaration, he challenges his father to a one-on-one -on -one combat. Satan is like, Yeah, okay, I'll fight you to the death for the fate of the planet, but your friends here have to promise they won't help you. Deal? Damon is like, Deal. Steve, you guys have to promise you won't try to help me, okay? Steve is like, Fine, we promise. Seconds later, the battle is underway. Satan starts kicking the absolute shit out of his son. Like, it's not even close. Steve is like, Hey, listen guys, you remember how a few seconds ago we promised we wouldn't try to help Damon? Well, I've got an idea. Let's help Damon. The rest of the gang is like, Oh yeah, absolutely we should do that. The defenders all hold hands and channel their energy into Steve, who then channels that power into Damon. The problem is that the thing that makes Damon more powerful is called the Dark Soul, and it's also the thing that makes him kind of evil. So the stronger the defenders make Damon, the eviler he gets. There's another problem as well. Even when he is at max power and therefore max evil, it turns out that Satan is just still way stronger than his son. So despite his buddies breaking their word and turning him completely evil, Damon is still getting his ass kicked. Bummer. Satan raises his pitchfork and prepares to deliver the death blow to his only begotten son. But then, as the defenders stare in horrified silence, a funny thing happens. What happens then? Well, in Hellville, they say that Satan's small heart grew three sizes that day. The Prince of Darkness looks down at his son and is like, Aw, oh, heck. I can't do it. I can't murder my son. I... I love him. You guys win. You unleashed the light of love in the darkness of my heart. I guess I've got a lot of thinking to do. Me and my buddies will just toddle back to hell now. Enjoy your planet. Damon is like, Hold up, Dad. Thanks to these lying dipshits, I'm all the way evil now. I may as well take you up on that offer to join you in the family business and help you rule hell. Satan is like, I'd... I'd like that. Why don't you go down there and wait for me? I'll be along in a minute. So, Son of Satan teleports himself to hell. Bye, Son of Satan! Satan turns to the rest of the defenders and is like, Okay, cool. Thanks for helping me get my boy back. You can have Patsy back now, too. I was probably just fucking with you guys about her being my daughter in the first place. Probably I never even cared about the Earth. And this whole thing was just a scam to help you to turn Damon all the way evil so he'd come to hell with me. Probably. But you never know. Okay, bye. And with those cryptic words, Satan and his surrogates fuck off back to hell. Bye, Satan! Within seconds, the world returns to its usual, pre-demonic invasion level of fucked up. The defenders find themselves standing in the middle of the street, pondering the age-old question. What happened? The 
end. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? It's going good. It's a sunny day, hanging out in the comic book room. I mowed a lawn. Bam! Yeah. You're hitting all the summer buttons. Bam, bam, bam. That's the noise <laughs> it makes when you hit a button, right? <laughs> I keep forgetting you have one of those really old keyboards. Yeah. <laughs> well, we got a giant-ass comic book to talk about. It is the 100th Defenders issue, Oof. and so we should probably just dive right into it. What do you say? Let's do it. Corey, what did you think of this comic book? I enjoyed it. I am sometimes a little nervous when there's a giant comic book to read, but overall, it was pretty enjoyable. I liked this idea of exploring, you know, morality and cause and effect and when it's okay to lie, when it's not okay to lie, <laughs> consequences of your decisions, that sort of a thing. Yeah, I thought it was pretty interesting in the way it dealt with that stuff. It was a comic that I liked better on rereading it than I did initially. Mm. On my first read-through, I thought it was fine, but the ending seemed kind of anticlimactic. Which, I mean, it, it was. Yeah, no doubt. But also just like, oh, really? Why did we bother with all of this? Which I think was part of the point. And also when it is a special double-sized milestone issue, I think the expectations are just generally raised pretty high already, especially when it is set up to be the culmination of a pretty long story arc. And to me, at least, having the culmination of that story arc being, and this one character who we brought in for this story arc is then going to leave the team to go on a road trip with his evil dad. Mm -hmm. Didn't seem like much, honestly. I feel like it's set up to be a seismic shift, and the only thing that changes is the element that was introduced for this story. Yeah, well, I guess the big thing about it was the Defenders have to once again save the Earth. Right. Uh, if they don't, it's going to be hell on Earth. Speaking of which, okay, so my major complaint with this, not enough goofy demons, man. I thought we were going to be in for a real treat. Yeah. <laughs> but nope. Not a ton of demons in general. We had a four-tailed lizard rat. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed that. Yep. Other than that, the only real goofiness we get out of the demons is uh, Thog wears a funny hat. Oh, yeah. Thog was the closest we got to really silly-looking figure puppets or whatever. We don't get a lot of silly-looking demons, but we do get some silly-acting devils, I felt like. My favorite part of the issue, by far, was the weekend dad satan who is trying his hardest maybe i don't know it, it was just such a weird awkward interaction where he's like look i know i haven't always been the best dad but come on i'm making an effort i'm taking you out for a drink we're going to the carnival together meet me halfway here antichrist yeah i guess i get why they had to make Satan be sentimental at the end for everything to work, but it felt like a real lost opportunity because at the beginning, he and especially Mephisto, like, there's just so much opportunity for them to be, like, really hateable bad mm -hmm. guys with great dialogue. And it kind of starts that way, where you're like, oh man, he's such an asshole, this is fun. And then he ends with, he's, I love you, man. Yeah, he goes from, like, 
I don't know, like a chick track Satan who is like genuinely intimidating and also sleazy evil mm -hmm. to being like a Milton Satan who's just like right out of Paradise Lost where it's just like, oh, the poor guy. I mean, at that point, he's basically humming cats in the cradle to himself. And yeah, it felt like a pretty abrupt change at the end. And also the fact that the whole and only way that the Defenders beat the League of Substitute Satans was because the devil, after defeating his son, was like, oh, I can't kill him, really does mean that everything the Defenders did in this issue was completely useless. Yeah, totally. So one thing that I did enjoy was this idea of like, okay, so Satan's the Prince of Lies, mm -hmm. so he lies all the time. Right. Which is, you know, that's fun for a comic. But did you get a sense of like, if he left the thing with like, I'm Patsy's real dad, maybe. Oh, totally. Like, I kind of liked that they left that hanging. I liked that ambiguity. I found it really frustrating, but I found it really frustrating in the way that we were supposed to find it really frustrating, where he, yeah, gives his little speech and was just like, you know, I was just making all that shit up about being your dad. Probably. Bye! And I love that while he's giving his exit speech, he's just slowly like sinking into a manhole cover or a pothole <laughs> like you just see his face like re receding while he's like and by the way blah 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 and then it seals up over him and it is like the middle of the road so it's just got that like yellow double line over his forehead yeah it reminded me of like a funny boss at work who does the pretending to go downstairs when they walk <laughs> behind a you know a wall Thing. See, that would have been a potential way he could have won his son Satan over. Mm -hmm. Like, I would have loved it if there was a little bit more of that, like, hey, got your nose, son. Maybe we could go out into the Elysian fields and have a catch. How would you feel about that? Right. Because those were the parts that worked best for me. There were, yeah, there were like three interstitial bits. First, he takes him out to the Devil's Dive Bar, which is my favorite single scene in the whole thing. It just is such a weird domestic scene, made very, very creepy by the fact that he is trying to hook his son up with his daughter, or his purported daughter, mm -hmm. that he's like, no, nah, she's her sister, so, you know, you guys should date. Very creepy, but the scene that they are in, just seeing the devil in a dive bar, mm -hmm. but that is built to his specifications, having the demonic waitress come up to the table with the serving tray and the, like, stone cup filled with lava that mm. they're gonna drink it's like that is really fun i want a whole comic set in this bar yeah i enjoyed that too it made me wonder what is the weird creature playing on that piano is it i don't know like a scott joplin like is it like a ragtime kind of thing or i feel it... like it is the muzak version of ragtime oh it is hell because it is hell <laughs> it is like hell. that's the thing like you want to be like oh, oh man it's hell those guys know how to rock mm-hmm but I feel like it's hell, so those guys know how to rock and willfully refrain from doing so. Mm. It's got to be very frustrating, but that was just such a fun scene. Also, when I saw those, like, they're these mugs that look like they're carved out of granite, and it looks like they have lava in them. And Son of Satan is offered one of these, and he whacks it away, and it goes flying everywhere. And that was honestly the most mad I got at Son of Satan in this issue because I was like, you know Satan's not going to be the one to have to clean that up. Ugh. You're just making more trouble for the wait staff, And they already are probably not having a great time in this infernal version of Cheers. Gosh, 
Can you imagine that, like, hell for restaurant servers, like, taking your job and making it even... Uh... I, I have difficulty imagining <laughs> ways to make it more hellish in some ways, because I still do have stress dreams about that shit. Yeah. So I think it would just be one of those where it's just, like, the same, only you're understaffed. Mm-hmm. And you gotta, you know, clean up after assholes like Son of Satan who are, you know, making a dramatic point with his dad by spilling his cup of lava on the floor. But the other reason I was upset with him, not just because he's gotta clean up that lava, but presumably it would not hurt him to drink this lava drink, and I really want to know what it tastes like. I imagined it was just, like, 16 ounces of Bacardi 151 that they had just lit on fire. Oh, that would make sense. I, maybe I was just projecting because, honestly, whenever I see footage of, like, volcanoes or any kind of lava flow, one of the first thoughts that I have is, oh, man, that looks delicious. Really? Yeah, doesn't lava look delicious to you? N- no, because the second you think of ingesting it, it just, you it's... Bur- painful yeah that's the problem but i mean like in this situation for son of satan patsy and satan doesn't look like it's hurting him any so like you get the opportunity to find out what lava tastes like and there's just something about the way it looks where i'm just like "Mm, that looks so good don't worry i'm not gonna eat lava but i wish i could and i bet it isn't good i i have found in my experience that most non-food items (laughs) do not taste good but there is something about lava that really does make me want to just, you know, have a little nibble. It looks so gooey. It probably has a really uh, earthy quality. Very mm. minerally. Yeah, I would say it probably tastes maybe a little bit like, I don't know, Bella Pock train travel? I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> no, it feels... <laughs> right, it right. It feels like Bella Pock train travel. It tastes like uh, iron or... Burning souls. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, uh... Lisa has been drinking some fancy teas lately, and one of the descriptions on the back says that drinking it feels like Bella Pock trade travel, and that is very funny. And the frustrating thing is, these are very good teas. So shout out to my Garden Plots with Skeletor co-writers, Megan, Bob, and Marissa, for recommending these obnoxiously delicious drinks. So the interstitial bits with the weekend satan dad mm-hmm. aside what was your favorite of the segments that the defenders were plunged into did you have a favorite i did the thing that was interesting to me was it was each of them explored this idea of we're going to take a part of one of the characters psyche and you know exploit it for demonic purposes and twist it a little bit mm-hmm and a lot of them had to do with exploiting guilt around in insecurity, right? Right. So Kyle's was was rich guy guilt. Right. He feels like he was a draft dodger. Really, all of the people that were in the war setting had some kind of survivor's guilt. Like, the most overt one was probably Gargoyle, yep. who meets his old pal Buster Henderson. Right. So I, I wrote down that Kyle has rich guy Guilt, which is, yeah, kind of a draft-dodging survivor's guilt. Um, Gargoyle, for sure, was a straight-up survivor's guilt. But the troubling one was Devil Slayer has child murder guilt? Yeah, which I think is a pretty reasonable kind of guilt to have. Like, that shouldn't necessarily be something you should just be able to put behind you. Like, how did they're like, yeah, the demons twisted things. I'm like, mm, either he did have some involvement in that or he didn't, right? So the kids don't directly accuse him of doing it. Or even his unit of killing them. 
It was the war that he was involved in. So I think we are supposed to extrapolate from that that Vietnam was a fucked up war and he was a part of that and these things happened in that war. Not that he was directly responsible for that, but that he contributed to the scene that caused that. But it is hard to not do a direct corollary and be like, oh shit, he murdered kids? Fuck that guy. Yeah, it wasn't... Like, what you said, the way you framed it makes total sense, right? And I'm sure that's actually a thing, right? That a lot of that's from that war struggle with so much bad shit went down. But the way it's written, it really sounds like like Kyle and Gargoyle have this, you know, reasonable but, like, not super evil <laughs> kind of guilt. And right. Then, and then Double Slayer's just like, holy shit, dude. Well, let's take a look at what the kids actually say to him. Because that was my first impression, too. And then upon rereading it was when I got the gloss that I did. So Devil Slayer's doing a pretty good job beating up Prussians and Huns and shit. And then he says, come on, you devils, come on. It's like, okay, you're Devil Slayer. You're going to slay some devils, get it. That's when the kids pop up and say, win, Eric Simon Payne? Just as nothing could stop you from winning that other war, you and your men refused to give in then too. No matter how many innocents were lost in the process, no matter how many children were left burned, bloody, and lifeless. So there isn't the direct accusation that you did this, but yeah, it is really easier to take that away from it. It doesn't say you did this, and it doesn't say you killed us. It was just that you refused to give in, and that led to this happening to Mm -hmm. us. But it is very disturbing. Yeah. Seeing, yeah, murdered children in hell. Yeah. Accuse you of killing them, directly or indirectly. I can understand why uh, why old ESP is going to be like, well, guess it's time to get stabbed. Yeah. That whole sequence was really effective, I thought, for the most part. As I said, we see Gargoyle's old buddy Buster Henderson, who has had his heart shot out in World War One. Neat piece of marksmanship there. Yep. Also, just the name... Buster, and then if you get a last name, I always am going to think Buster Poindexter first. Oh, I think Keaton. Oh, that, that's a much classier <laughs> reference. I was thinking, especially because they're in hell, it's like, oh, make it hot, hot, hot. <laughs> but mostly in that, because Thog, who is, you know, one aspect of Satan, mm-hmm. is telling them all they have to fight. I was getting heavy Black Sabbath vibes from that. I was like, oh, this is War Pigs. It's a real War Pigs situation. Yeah. yeah. It always bugs me in that song how people would accuse Black Sabbath of being Satanists and stuff. It's like, you listen to that song, they think Satan's a real asshole. Oh, yeah. He does not come out good from that. No, nobody should be laughing and spreading their wings when all that bad shit's going down. Exactly. Yeah. It's it's a fairly strong anti-war song. It's like, yeah, this fucking devil, all he wants to do is fuck us up. Mm -hmm. Sick of his shit. Just wants us to murder each other. Right, yeah. And so I was actually very impressed that Kyle was just like, hey, hey, we should stop fighting because look at that asshole. He's the one who wants us to fight. This is a dumb thing to do. We're not getting anything out of this. And everybody is just like, huh, yeah, you know what? Actually, yeah. It it really bugged me. <laughs> like, yeah. I get it. Like, But it was just so facile. Like, Kyle's like, wait a minute. War is unreasonable. Therefore, if I'm reasonable war will stop mm-hmm. hey guys stop fighting and they're and like, like oh, oh huh. okay i never thought of it that way yeah honestly the contest made no fucking sense like if you are entering into a contest with the devil okay first of all don't 
Mm -hmm. But make sure you at least have some conception of what the rules are, because they are told that if they can find the light in the darkness, then they'll win. Yeah. Does that mean that one of the groups needs to do that? Do they need a two out of three? Do all of them need to do that? And then all of them do actually do it, and then the devils are like, yeah, but you know what? Fuck you. Let's blow you up with nuclear bombs anyway. Yeah, no, my first thing when I read that was I was like, oh, man, they need to find Ronnie James Dio. Rest in peace. Yeah. Rainbow in the dark. Oh, that's all the lights in the dark. Right. Man, such a good song. It's <laughs> <laughs> so silly. It's so good. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it drives me crazy. I don't understand why they also thought that the devil would just, because he breaks his own rules mm -hmm. constantly, mm -hmm. and he does in this issue, and they break his rules, too. Well, Steve breaks his rules. I mean, he's the ringleader of the rule break. Oh, uh, he really is. And it doesn't stop him at the very end when the cop's like, hey, you dipshits, get out of the middle of the road. Why don't you go get, save the world or something? He's like, mm, I think we just did. It's like, you did absolutely fuck all except for make your friend eviler. If they hadn't eviled up Damon Hellstrom, his dad still wouldn't have been able to kill him. You get the exact same result, only you still get your friend at the end of that version. If we are to take the devil at his word, which, granted, we should not ever do. Mostly what this whole scenario reminded me of is the song The Devil Went Down to Georgia. <laughs> and I wonder if that's why Steve was just like, well, I think we can negotiate with this man in good faith. I mean, clearly he was an impartial judge of that fiddle contest. Mm. Like, maybe more than impartial. Because, frankly, I think that the devil won that concert. His fiddle solo had a bass solo in it. <laughs> so I wonder if that golden fiddle was a loss leader for Satan, and he's just like, this will get me some good press, all right? Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll lose my golden fiddle to this guy, but then everybody else will think I'm a fucking pushover, and that, you know, I'll be reasonable when they're contests, and uh, I'll give them what I promised. It's a pretty clever move, honestly. I suppose so. Huh. I never thought of it like that. <laughs> My neighbors play that song weekly. Really? Mm -hmm. Loud. At a specific time? Nope. Just whenever? R random. Huh. It's a good song. <laughs> it is, but... <laughs> yeah. It's good when you control when it is played and the volume of it. Mm. It is weird, though, that the devil thought he lost that contest. Mm. And just conceded victory. Mm-hmm. Wasn't the jury made up of demons, too? I guess, kind of like this comic, there are just cosmic laws. Like, you have to finish making Hell on Earth by 6 a.m., or we're, all bets are off. <laughs> like, same deal, right? You have six hours, six minutes, and six seconds. Mm -hmm. Of course. I did enjoy that. Mm -hmm. I thought there'd be more infighting between the devils. Were you waiting for that? Not really. I mean, it's pretty clear, right? Each of them, like, okay, you three, here's your chance to go fuck up the Defenders and make Hell on Earth happen. Defies cool contests for that. And that first one, like, I was a little bit excited that it was a return to Vermont and mm -hmm. all that Dormammu stuff that went down there. But then I was just... There wasn't a heck of a lot That was to not it. very original, sir. No, and honestly, Steve's solution was, like, the least 
profound of any of them. The others were just like, ah, the light that I need to shine in the darkness is the light of reason in the darkness of ignorance. Or the light that I need to shine is the light of passion into the darkness of indifference. Or more so, like, objectivism. There was like a real Anne Rand feel to the Silver Surfer bit. Really? I wasn't getting that. Oh, really? They were just like, the most important thing you can believe in is your own ability to be happy. Uh, I guess you're right. But Steve's was just like, oh, it's pretty dark here, and so I will shine the light from my little bobble that I use as a brooch. Man, I'm glad he has the Eye of Agamotto. Like, it's a pretty fucking useful thing. Uh But I also do feel like it's a little bit too much of a get-out-of-jail-free card. It just is weird that, like, for the other riddle solutions, it was like, the concept that I will embody is truth. The concept that I will embody is passion. The concept that I will embody is this fun toy I have. Yeah, or just, like, literal shine a light. Right. And also, in that section, it was nice to see Zemnu. I like Zemnu. He's a fun goofball. But that's not the Zemnu I want to see. If you're going to show me Zemnu, I want him to be hosting a children's program where he's making astronauts throw pies at each other. That's the Zemnu we love. I know. That was so disappointing to me. Nary a pie tossed. None. I get that they're in hell, but like they could be like, I don't know, burning pies? Lava pie. There you go. Mm. Problem solved. Yep. I did enjoy the extent to which the Hulk was just like, we have to smash everything. And Namor's like, yeah, I'd argue with you, but who'd listen? (laughs) (laughs) That was fun. Buddy comedy. (laughs) Really? I I loved that Namor was just like, hey, when you're right, you're right. Smash it is. Yep. That was a funny one, too, where there's this giant battle that happens and they're just like, oh, shit, where's Steve? And Steve was like sleeping. Did they even fucking look for him? There's like, we gotta go find Steve. Let's jump down this hole. And Steve wakes up. He's like, hey, man, where'd everybody go? <laughs> yeah, I think technically what he said is, oh. <laughs> my head, I'm with like a hive of bees on a hot June day. Exactly. Oh, boy. Those demons really beat the shit out of me. Yep. Oh, well, time for go, Steve. Mm-hmm. I also very much enjoyed the one that was in the void. I think perhaps... I did not get the Randian context to it, which made me like it more. But I thought it made sense to have, like, these guys always felt like outsiders. They always wanted somewhere to belong. And, yeah, gosh, actually, when I'm saying it out loud now, yeah, I can hear the objectivism that it's not important to belong somewhere to a community, that it is about individualism and your own path. Okay, you're right. It's there. Hard work, man. Yeah. Do your work. But I still dug it. Yeah, I did too. And it was a really nice break from all the, you know, chaos. Like, we're going to have a scene where we have every single soldier from every single war ever fought. And, like, there's just so much visually to take in. Mm -hmm. And then this is just blank, like, white background, the void. Yeah, we will have five pages with no backgrounds. And I think that must have been quite a relief for the inkers on this, too. Mm There is one credited inker, it is Joe Sinnott. But. This was very much an all-hands-on-deck situation. There were, I believe, four different uncredited anchors who contributed to this. There was Frank Giacoa, Sal Trapiani, the editor Al Milgram did some inks on this, and Jack Abel, I think, also contributed some inks. But I think it must have been nice for them to just be like, I don't even know to what extent it was 
scripted that way or if it was just like, no, we need a fucking break. <laughs> we're, we're behind schedule on this. Uh, can you tweak this dialogue so that instead of, I don't know, floating by some capybara youth pastors, <laughs> there is just nothing there. But I thought it worked really well for the story as well as working from a logistical standpoint. Yeah, it was great. It was a relief for the reader as well as the art team. Mm -hmm. And it was nice to see a couple of things acknowledged about Clea. One, this is the first time in a long time, if ever, that she has been treated like a full member of the team. And that was really nice to see because we have been promised that that was coming for a long time. Back to like midway through Ed Hannigan's run, I think at the beginning of the David Craft run, they had hinted that they were going to be doing that. And it was nice to see that. I don't know how long it will last, but I liked seeing her treated as a fully fledged member of the Defenders and getting her own little story arc. I also liked the acknowledgement that in her secret heart of hearts, the thing that tempts her the most is having Steve bow down to her. Yeah, I was just going to comment on that too. It brought back his word choice, and was it the previous issue of, <laughs> my disciple, I mean, my love. <laughs> <laughs> my disciple, and also my love. Yeah, less importantly, but... Right. In order of importance, my disciple and girlfriend. Yeah. That was drawn really cool, too. We'll talk about that later, I guess. Like, Queen. Yeah. Clea. You know? Yeah, and not just Steve, but also having Merlin in the background. Yeah. Or some guy wearing the stereotypical wizard pajamas and pointy hat just being like, Well, she's the best! Yep. Yeah, I really dug that, and I loved her expression on her face that's just like, Ooh, maybe. Yeah, that is tempting. <laughs> Gosh. That is tempting, Satan. I wouldn't normally make a deal with you, but... Uh, oh. Considering. Can I get back to you on that? <laughs> yeah. She looked like she was maybe more tempted than either Valkyrie or Silver Surfer. Those ones seemed like more afterthoughts, both to the writer and for maybe Mephisto, where he's just like, and Valkyrie, you're a Valkyrie, so you could go do Valkyrie things if you give me your soul. It's like, well, she's turned down that opportunity several times before, not for her soul, just because she kind of likes Earth. So that maybe doesn't have the same teeth. And then for the Silver Surfer, it was just like, you could also just sail around the universe forever with your space girlfriend. I feel like that one was interesting, though, because it's like kind of this idea of like, here's everything that was taken from you, given back to you, and then it just backfires. Pretty bad for, I forget which surrogate Satan that was, but... That was Mephisto. Okay. The thing is, that is the exact deal that Mephisto has offered the Silver Surfer like a billion times, and every time he's just like, no, fuck you. Well, I guess what's the thing in business? You gotta ask at least seven times? Is that what it is? Yeah, like you call somebody and you're like, hey, are you interested in our services? And they're like, no. And you're like, okay. And you just keep doing that seven times. After that, stop. I have had some very bad salesmen try to deal with me. I told you about the one that uh, that, that swore <laughs> at me. Was it, you said, I'm capricious. And he said, no, you're an asshole. Oh, no, you're an idiot. That guy didn't swear at me. There was another guy who called the bar when I was working there who... He asked to speak to the owner. The owner wasn't there, so I was like, I'm sorry, he's not here right now. Uh, can I take a message? And he's like, uh, yeah, tell him to call this number. It was clearly a sales call, and I was like, okay, can I tell him what this is regarding? And he said, uh, it's regarding his business. And I was like, okay, uh, what was that number again? And he repeated the number, and he's like, do you read that back to me? And I said, no, because I didn't actually write it down. <laughs> and he's like, 
so you're just wasting my time? And I was like, no, I think you're wasting both of our times by thinking that a business owner is going to call you back with no message or idea what this is regarding. I told you he's busy. And he said, oh, so this is how you F-words in Portland run a business? <laughs> the bad F-word. Uh -huh. uh, yeah. And I was like, huh. But no, he should have just said seven times. What should he have said? Oh, just, uh, are you interested? <laughs> no? Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks for your time. Mm -hmm. I you know, and just like every week for seven oh, weeks. I don't like that that would work. This they they just get it stuck wears in your people head. down. And they're like, fine, I, I don't even care. You get fatigue of like saying no. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like how that's kind of uncomfortable sometimes to say no. Mm. You only needs to say yes once. You miss one hundred percent of the souls you don't try to buy. That's true. That's some good devil business yep. advice. Yeah, we're learning a lot about devil economics. Uh -huh. You got your loss leader of a golden fiddle. Uh-huh. And uh persistence, persistence, persistence. Persistence, 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 persistence. Mm -hmm. That's the rule? Yeah. Okay, that was seven. Yeah. Alright. When Satan goes into his little backstory about how he married Patsy's mom, mm -hmm. and he's her dad. Did it bug you out how much the devil dressed up like Steve for that marriage? I didn't notice because I was so focused on the back of the pastor's head. Yes! What the fuck was going on with that pastor's haircut? It was like a Mr. T reverse... I don't know how to describe that. He it's... was losing his hair. Yeah, it looked like he was trying to do a comb-over mohawk all the way from the back of the, like, Hulk Hogan ring of baldness. It was just really weird. He had, like, the usual male pattern baldness, like, extreme version. Like, it's a horseshoe of hair that is at about ear level. Uh -huh. But then from that, it looked like really combed up from that. Like, he had grown out a ponytail and was trying to pull that up over, but all the way to the front, like a mohawk. There was a guy who used to live in my old building seemed perfectly nice but he was balding and he had dreadlocks which meant that the dreadlock was just hanging onto his head like the lid of a can of beans hangs on for a hobo with that when they're heating the beans <laughs> over the fire it's just like that one little tiny flap that's holding it onto its head it was so disturbing and it was so hard not to stare at but i think something like that might be going on with that priest yeah that's why i didn't notice that the devil Satan's looked like Steve? Yeah. Yeah, he, he looked like Steve. Oh. That whole story was just kind of weird. Just that it was, how could Patsy possibly be your daughter? And he's like, well, I fucked her mom. <laughs> yep. We got married, and then, I mean, I may be the devil, but I'm not a churl. You know, I put a ring on it. Right. And then, you know, we dated a bunch. And then Patsy was born. Patsy's story was the thing that I found maybe most unsatisfying about this story. Patsy never really had any agency in this issue, and it bothered me. I think it makes sense narratively. You have shown before in the past, Valkyrie was able to snap her out of her possession, being all deviled up thing by professing love for her, and that their relationship was strong enough. So you can't really have that again. I get that it's now it's stronger, but I felt like we should have at least seen some kind of struggle from her, because she has been such a strong character in the past. Maybe it doesn't work this time, but you want something from her so that she's something other than a victim in this scenario, and we never got that at all. 
And I think that's underscored when you have the devil, when he is spinning this probably lie about the fact that he is her dad, everyone believes him instantly because he's like, well, how else would a woman be good at fighting crime? It was pretty uncomfortable. I know, yeah, she doesn't have any training, so how would she take to crime fighting so easily when she was just a civilian? That's fucking superheroes. That's, yeah. like, all of these fucks. Yeah. I, I didn't like, also, at the very beginning, like, maybe on the first page, he was like, ha-ha, now you see my great machinations, like, why I did all this stuff, the five-figured hand, the possession of Patsy. I was like, I still don't really get <laughs> no. why you did that and how that furthered your no. case. No. Just because you said it, we're, like, supposed to be like, oh, yeah, totally. Good plan, dude. Like, amazing. Yeah. And the other thing I really disliked was that Patsy was the way that it was set up so that she's the object of Son of Satan's desire and his way of dealing with those feelings is to smack her. Yeah. Because he's like, oh, this is creepy. I shouldn't feel this way. And so I'm going to hit this person. I mean, that's not great. There's frankly the whole idea that like the devil needs to have an heir. So he is going to use his daughter to lure his son back into the fold. Why not just have your daughter be your successor? So I'm sorry, but Satan is canceled. You hear that occult Twitter? There was a weird little scene where in the opening, there's the marquee of a theater that is showing a movie called The Devil and Mr. Something. Was this at the time as the famous Devil and Miss Jones porn thing? And they were trying to... Well, it would be The Devil in Miss Jones was the porn version that oh. was making fun of the title of a 40s movie that was The Devil and Miss Jones, which wasn't actually about the devil. It was about union busting. It's a, an undercover boss situation, oh. but where he's trying to bust a union and then he's like, no, you know what? My workers are pretty great. But then, yes, in the 70s, there was a movie called The Devil in Miss Jones, which was a very high budget pornographic film. And then a few years after that, there was a much less successful The Devil and Mr. Jones, which was also a porn. Oh. But it just seemed like a weird choice. That you would specifically make it the Mr. I, I mean, I get it that it's the devil, but there's plenty of movie titles that have the devil in them. Or just make it the devil and miss. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe they were worried that it sounded too much like the porno, and they weren't aware of the other porno that they were referencing <laughs> then. Or maybe they just thought that was a superior movie, and that was the movie that the devil liked. Yeah, we'll never know. But I thought that was a weird choice. I agree. I did also think it was funny the extent to which... Son of Satan is looking around Times Square, and yes, it is a nightmarish hellscape now, but he's like, you took a beautiful world and turned it into this. I was like, <laughs> okay, Times Square in the 70s I've seen described a lot of ways, and honestly, perhaps unfairly, exaggeratedly described as being an unpleasant place, but I have never seen it described as a beautiful world. No. Maybe Son of Satan just has very specific taste. Maybe it was just like, this place was awesome! Yeah. They were showing my favorite porno, and now you ruined it. Look at that. The letters are falling off the marquee. Thanks a lot, Dad. God. Just get back in your asphalt hot tub. What did you think of the cover of the issue? I liked it. I liked the perspective of the issue number 100. It kind of reminded me of... The Star Wars credits? Right, only in reverse. Yeah. Like, it's being pro projected above you instead of scrolling away from you. Yeah. No, yeah. it's great. 
It is. It's an homage to another cover, another 100th issue, actually, the 100th issue of the X-Men, which had come out a few years before this. In that version, it was Professor X was standing in the Steve Strange position where he's in the middle of the two forces, and in that he's trying to hold them apart as the two teams are about to fight each other. And this is referencing that, but these two sides, they're not trying to make it like look like they're going to fight each other. They're fighting some other force yeah. together. But yeah, in the X-Men version, it was a Dave Cockrum cover, and it was the original X-Men on one side, the new X-Men on the other side, and they're about to fight, and Professor X is trying to keep them apart. But I think this is a clever reference to that without outright aping it. Yeah, nice. As by Al Milgram, and he does a nice job. I'm always surprised at the many hats that Al Milgram wears very competently. I tend to think of him mostly as an inker. I'm not sure why, but he's a really good penciler. He's a really good editor. He did a lot in the comic industry over a long period of time. Yeah, that's got to be satisfying. I hope so. Yeah. Satisfying, but not necessarily. I mean, I get the impression that the comics industry is a lot like the mafia in terms of not a great retirement plan. Oh. Yeah. Doesn't pay as well as the mafia either. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Really, if you're looking for a career... Seems like Mafia's the way to go between the two. Okay. So much good business advice. Uh, Golden fiddles are a loss leader. Uh-huh. Uh, Seven times. Persistence, 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 persistence. Yeah. And uh, maybe join the Mafia. There's a downside. Like I said, terrible retirement plan. Uh-huh. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about before we get into the minutia? No, let's do it. All right, Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. All right, Corey, so for our 100th Defenders issue, what category do you want to start off with first? Let's just get a best and worst out of the way. Okay, I actually had a thought about this category. This is issue 100 of the Defenders. Do you think it's time we named the worst and best? Like, we have the Beast Boy and the Aqualad? I like saying worst offender, but I don't know. Do you think it's time to associate that with a certain defender, each one, or no? Gosh, I feel, and this may or may not be accurate, but I feel like that position gets switched around kind of a lot. I feel like I have Steve for worst and Steve for best often, Right, for example. Here's what I was thinking. I don't think we necessarily have one for the best, but maybe we could have the best defender and the Jack Norris. <laughs> I think I did maybe have Jack Norris as the best once, but still, overall, I think we would be hard-pressed to find a character worse than Jack Norris in this comic book. Although, Elf with a Gun. <sighs> That's, like, not even a character for me. No. That's, like, a gimmick. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's like like choosing your least favorite child. <laughs> Which one's the shittiest? I hate them both so much. For yelling, where's my wife? All the time. Jack Norris is probably the worst that I can think of. Okay. How do you feel about it? We have the best defender and the Jack Norris. Oh, man. I just feel like that's going to raise the judging criteria bar a little bit for me because of i don't know sometimes like everybody just sort of does okay so you're splitting hairs yeah and you and don't like, necessarily want to put the label jack norris on somebody who's trying their best yeah and like okay say val has a bad issue 
I really like her, so I'm going to be like, oh, man. Really? Jack Norris? Okay, well, then uh, I think that makes sense. So let's just keep it at best defender, worst offender. Okay. Let's go. This is a tricky one for me. Yeah, me too. So I wish I could think of a different best defender based on what you said earlier about how the outcome would have been exactly the same regardless of Steve's actions, but I had initially picked him as the best because he was the one who, on my first reading of it, was like, okay, guys, we have to cheat and it sucks, but let's help our buddy out and uh, it stopped Hell on Earth from being a thing. But you're right, you raised a, a valid point, right? Like, if Steve hadn't cheated and made Son of Satan stronger... He still would have lost the fight. But then he wouldn't have gone on the road trip with his shitty dad at the end. Right, so he would have, like, at least gone out less evil. Or he would still be sticking around with the Defenders. Like, because Satan was just about to leave. He was about to be like, Oh, I guess I don't want to conquer Earth anymore. I really love you, my son. I can't kill you. Bye. But, I guess, to be Devil's Advocate, uh, if the Defenders, led by Steve, hadn't made Son of Satan stronger by channeling their energies into him. Into making him totally evil. Then what likely would have happened is Satan would have just, like, killed him super fast and then then maybe been like, uh, oh, I'm super bummed out. I maybe. killed my kid. I realize I loved him. So by making him stronger, they, they stretched out the fight, which gave Satan time to realize how much he loved his kid. Maybe. <laughs> okay. So you went with Steve? Well, I, I, can I switch it if you have a better one? I don't know. Yeah, sure. I had a couple to choose from. I actually had down Kyle for doing the whole, you guys, why are you obeying this guy? He's the devil. And, you know, basically convincing the Legion of Armies. He must have been delivering those lines really well. If that's everybody's reaction to them. Like... It seems implausible, but it also seems like that must have been a really impassioned speech that he gave. So I was very tempted to go with him. Ultimately, I went with Clea for turning down the most tempting offer in the whole book. For saving the universe by denying herself the pleasure of having Steve admit that she's better than him. That's a good one. So, yeah, I went with Clay. I had Kyle written down. I had all the reasons written down. And then after that, I just crossed it out and wrote, or Clea. And I think Clea is actually the better choice. Yeah, I like it. To keep things interesting, I'm going to keep Steve. Okay. But you make some good points. Well, conversely, for worst, I had Son of Satan for deciding, eh, sure, he's the embodiment of all that's evil in the universe, but he's still my dad. So... Let's go, buddy. That drove me crazy. The fact that he knocked over all of those drinks and just left them for the wait staff to clean up because he was mad at Satan. Satan's not going to pick those up. You're just making things worse for people who are already in a bad situation. I was going to go with Damien Hellstrom, but then I was like, but Steve. I actually went with Steve. The fact that at the end he took credit it's like, well, I mean, we did just save the world. No, dude. You teleported all around, didn't use your cosmic offsets. You put the world in danger and then did all of this fucking dog paddling around to no effect. <laughs> and then Satan was like, yeah, hey, I'm leaving now. 
and you're like, well, a job well done, and all it cost me is the soul of one of my friends. Good job, Steve. I saved the world from me by doing nothing. I had Steve. Yeah, you make a pretty good case for that. Who did you have? I had Damon for the reasons you mentioned then and also for what we touched on earlier where his desire for Patsy manifests as violence towards Patsy yeah. because he's conflicted about it. That was gross. I think Son of Satan is a good choice and he was my initial choice, like I said, but the more I thought about it, the more upset I was at Steve. Yeah, I guess I'm just going to cling to that shard of possibility <laughs> that... Maybe Satan wouldn't have loved his kid as much if his kid hadn't been all the way evil. If he had just accidentally killed his kid real fast. Right. Because Steve didn't intervene, and then it would have been hell on earth for everybody. Mm. It's possible. If you're going to kill your kid in battle, you want to do it quickly. It's like yeah. taking off a Band-Aid. Yeah, exactly. And Steve prevented that Band-Aid. He was like, no. No, I'm going to make it cling to your hairs a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this should hurt, buddy. Yeah, yeah, take it off slow. Uh-huh. All right. Corey, what was your favorite sound effect in this issue? This one was a pretty clear winner for me, and it was on page 12, uh, Punching Noise, which is Boomp. Boomp is pretty fun. That was the one that I had first written down, too. I also liked Satan's specific energy punch noises make a fzzzt noise, yeah. which is nice, because it sounds like fizzling. Also sounds like maybe it's trying to say Faust. You know, if you can work a literary reference into your onomatopoeia always good sure but i think maybe my favorite it's just a small one but when patsy fights valkyrie and it makes the noise bash i just like a hit actually making the noise bash and also in that panel it was just weird and i kept looking at it more because valkyrie most of her top is black it is a completely black background and there are no lines. Maybe it's a muddled copy that I had, but there didn't seem to be any lines between the background and her outfit. So it just looked like her boob cones were floating. <laughs> like, it just looked like Patsy was beating up a pair of disembodied boobs. Oh. And it made the noise, bash! Dang. Yeah, it's like she hit her so hard that now her boobs are ghosts. Or boobs. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue do you want to talk about? So we touched on it already a little bit, but that panel in which we see the possibility, anyway, of Queen Clea. Yeah. Like, that's a pretty cool getup. Man, her boots, specifically in that panel, are fucking rad. Very complicated. Yeah, they're like made of filigree. They're just really, really cool looking and ornate. They go all the way up to her fancy underpants that she's wearing. And she's got a weird combination dress cape thing going on. Fun headdress. She's carrying a stick that has a paper crane on top of it. It's just a very elaborate look. Her weird cape dress thing is fur-lined. Just a lot of thought went into that outfit design. And... It really works. I would not hate it if she got a costume like that as her crime-fighting gear. Yeah, it looks regal, too. Very. That was definitely one of the things that I noticed. We talked about that priest's haircut a bunch. Ugh. On page 16, there's a few things. I mean, the most obvious one is up top. We have the 
demonic lounge singer on top of the hellish piano that is being played by an old-timey, like, riverboat gambler, maybe? But he's also a demon? Yeah. His whole outfit is great. It is an orange-striped shirt with a purple vest and a straw boater hat over it. But my favorite touch of it is that he is wearing arm garters that have a skull on them. And that is just a badass look. Yeah, yeah, very hellish. It's like the toughest artisanal bartender in town. (laughs) So that's my favorite thing on the page. But also notable, I think, is the fact that I had never really realized this before, but I think Son of Satan has maybe tattooed his eyebrows on. (laughs) It's got a little bit of a a Nat Funicello thing going on. It's weird. Like, his eyebrows are often in that arched, angry position. And they are in this, but he's not angry. He's super sad. Which really leads me to believe that they are either drawn on or possibly tattooed on. I have known some people who have had tattooed on eyebrows in the past. I used to have a coworker, and she was fucking rad. But it was always a little bit disconcerting. She had tattooed on her eyebrows so that rather than having to do her makeup all the time, she could just shave off her eyebrows and then would have the tattoos in place. And when she was angry, it was horrifying because she just looked like it would be like a very placid looking face that looked slightly surprised. But from the tone of her voice, you could tell that she was furious. And that combination of just like slight surprise that was from the arched eyebrows with fury in the voice is just like, oh no. Something bad may oh, oh no. happen. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And so I think Son of Satan has something like that going on. Was there any other fashion you wanted to talk about? My only other thing was also Son of Satan, where after he goes full evil, he just has fire hair. Mm-hmm. And I like a good fire hair. Yeah, it's a good look. Pretty cool. Well, Corey, I think it's time for our weekly Battle of the Band Names! In last week's poll, we crowned a new champion. What? I am the Thunder. Soundly defeated the (laughs) gods of science. Yeah, I know what I said. This week, were you able to find a band name that you feel confident putting up against the bombastic, self-aware, but still meaning it braggadocia garage rock? (laughs) Of I Am The Thunder. I got a couple contenders. Okay, who you got? So one is a solo act. Oh. I think maybe he's like a jazz guy. He plays a a saxophone. Who is this? I'm very intrigued by this jazz saxophone playing solo artist. It is uh, Buster Henderson. (laughs) Okay. And in my notes, I don't know if it's part of how he writes his stage name, there is a exclamation point, and a question mark. Mm. So he probably writes it that way. Oh, I'm sure he does. Yeah. Yeah. So, hmm. I mean, long line of musical busters. Poindexter, of course. Uh, Buster Blood Vessel. Uh Uh-huh. Ska singer. For, what was this band? Was that Bad Manners? Memory is your department, sir. Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so Buster Henderson is one choice. One of my options was The Capering Fools. Oh. I think that's a pretty good band. I think the difficult thing in calling them a band is I don't know if any of them actually play instruments. I think it's a super group made up of the people who go up on stage and dance for other bands but don't play instruments. 
I think Hazel had one of those. Uh, there was the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. That guy's name I actually remember was Ben Carr. He was listed in the credits as the Boss Tone. So I think it's a super group of those guys who just go up on stage and dance around kind of arrhythmically to a playlist. Hype people? Yes. All right. So that's the Capering Fools. Oh, man. What other ones did you have? I also had, I think, the psychedelic stylings of the four swirling shapes. Ooh, the four swirling shapes is pretty good. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, they're clearly psychedelia. Yeah. Um, but, like, maybe psychedelic, like, soul music. Kind of like I'm picturing, like, when the Temptations were going through their phase where they did Psychedelic Shack. Yeah. Where it's like, the music's actually more or less pretty straightforward, like, maybe a little bit psychedelic, but the the lyrics are more, like, like the, trippy. What's that band? Chambers Brothers, maybe? The one that had that song? Oh, yeah. Time. With Man, all the echo and Chambers reverb. Brothers were great. Kind of along similar lines, I thought the puzzle pieces... That sounds like kind of like an old Motown band, doesn't it? Yeah. So I think they're kind of like a Motown group, the oh, puzzle pieces. That's nice. I like that. And the other one that I had was Stupefaction. What? <laughs> yeah. It's like that movie Satisfaction that Justine Bateman was in where she played a, uh, a rocker. It's that, but, you know, dumber. <laughs> Stupefaction. Stupefaction. Huh. I kind of like Stupefaction. Probably tour would slightly stupid. Oh, totally. <laughs> I had one other, and I, I don't know if it's, it's, it's like one of those that's like too long, but they are a trifle disoriented, comma, in some ways improved. <laughs> Whoa! Huh. Yeah. I mean, I like it. I don't like the idea of typing that into a Twitter poll. <laughs> but I don't want that to be the disqualifying factor. Say it again. A trifle disoriented comma, space, in some ways improved. <laughs> I do like that. I think that makes more sense to me as an album title than a band name. It's though. a little busy. Yeah. But there are some busy band names out there. Uh-huh. Stupefaction? I like Stupefaction. Let's go with Stupefaction. <laughs> okay, what kind of music do you think Stupefaction plays? Oh, I think it sounds a lot like um, Slightly Stupid or 311 or one of those where it's like college age people that like okay. weed a lot and maybe listens to a lot of reggae but okay so don't, reggae do, don't and really can't gotcha do that exactly incompetent reggae influenced college rock <laughs> with a very heavy weed influence okay that's stupefaction for you <laughs> i don't like the band but i like their name yep all right Corey, what was your pie not made out of steel in this issue what words did you like best, much like you would like a pie, if it were not made out of steel? Man, across these almost 40 pages, there were a lot of words, and so it was a little tricky mm -hmm. to narrow it down, so I took rather a long passage. All right. I did have a backup one, though, which was just two words, which is on page 26, was the exclamation, Odin's beard! Odin's beard's pretty fun. That's always good. I actually considered that as a band name, too. Oh, nice. But uh, what I went with was on page 11, it was exposition, and it goes, The wind screams, too, in the hills of nearby Rutland, Vermont, the air pregnant with a sickly odor. The ground trembles as if giants shake the earth. But these things do not concern the three heroes who suddenly materialize here. Their eyes see only the imposing presence of Bald Mountain, 
and the flaming claws that rise from its deepest depths. I like that too, and I think that is a reasonable thing to be distracted by. It's like, oh, they're not really taking in all the details of this scene, because there are two giant demon hands coming out of that fucking mountain. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That whole scene was really beautifully drawn, too. I, I really enjoyed that. Striking. Mm-hmm. Great word picture, great picture picture. Both. I had a few to choose from. I think my favorite, probably, is this sassy police officer at the end when the <laughs> defenders are standing in the middle of the road because Satan has just sunk into that road like a office funny boss pretending to go downstairs. <laughs> the police officer says, All right, you costume crazies. What do you think you're doing blocking a street like this? Instead of standing around drawn like jerks, why don't you make yourself useful? Go out and save the world or something. I loved that. And I also loved Steve's response when he's like, Oh, shit. I guess Steve is not the one who initially says that they saved the world. It's Gargoyle who says, Saved the world, officer. I think we just did. Well, see, there you go. Now you gotta go change your best and worst. Nope, because Steve totally backs him up. He says, Indeed, the future is mankind's to mold again. An earthly heaven or hell. But which, I wonder, will it be? So he's saying, Yes, we did, but you guys will probably fuck it up again. Steve away! (laughs) I liked that he ended on that more philosophical than usual note. Mm. Well, normally he's like, we did a great job. But here he's like, we did a great job. But for what? (laughs) (laughs) What's the point? (laughs) Much more existential Steve than we usually get. We saved the world for you, (laughs) ding-dongs. Try not to fuck it up too badly. Ding-dongs. You will. He totally calls people ding-dongs. Oh, absolutely. So I think that was probably my favorite, but I also very much liked, we talked about it earlier, when Namor keeps agreeing with the Hulk. It was adorable, and I don't think he does it better than when the Hulk says, Hulk doesn't care about wisdom. Hulk doesn't care about men that don't look like men. Hulk only cares about winning. And Namor responds, Sometimes, Hulk, your brutish logic is most eloquent. Let us write a finish to this insanity. But he just keeps going around agreeing with the Hulk, and it's really cute. It is. Yeah. No, that's my favorite, like, buddy caper of the whole thing. The whole, when you're right, you're right, smashing time. Yeah. Imperious Rex. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, Namor really tries to put a, like, oh, I'm doing this stuff for reasons. But I think he's very, very hulky in his approach to Oh, Totally. Yeah, he's going to give a Shakespearean monologue about why he's going to smash, but still, if you distill what he's actually saying, it's usually, Namor smash. Yeah. Well, Corey, it's time for us to behold or be gone. In this issue, we see that Satan has somehow split himself off, or the universe has split Satan off, into four different aspects of himself. And they're working together towards a common goal. If you had the ability to split yourself off into four different aspects of yourself, would you do it? Oh, I guess there's a few qualifying questions. Can I get back to the single self after I split? Yes, but it takes six hours, six minutes, and six seconds. All right. Do I control which elements of myself I split into these four pieces? 
Or does it just always happen the same way? I think it's always going to happen the same way. So there's going to be at least one of these that's kind of, <laughs> like, doesn't have your best Yeah, parts. you're, you're going to have one Cory that's all snouts and assholes. Sorry, buddy. Probably. That's to be gone. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, no, I can understand it would be unsettling to be forced to confront the worst aspects of yourself. The saving grace for me in this situation would be that they all look differently, so I'm not having to look at myself the whole time <laughs> and confront physically what I look like all the time. Right. So that's definitely in the bonus category. Okay. I am not looking forward to recognizing my worst qualities from the outside, but I think I am giving it a behold. Because if I was split four ways, there would be a 75% chance that I'm not going to have to be the one to edit this episode. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a behold <laughs> oh man that's fair so my concern wasn't so much that i would have to confront the bad elements of myself oh, but more so that those would be exposed to other people who i care about without the filter of right the better parts of myself but they won't know it's you because you won't look like you i still don't want that yeah no that's very that. that's very altruistic of you oh, thank the you. part of me that just said that would be the snouts and assholes <laughs> One behold, one be gone. Yep. Corey, what was your favorite panel in this issue? Well, much like our Battle of the Band Names winner, I really enjoyed the open mouth stupefaction depicted on page five. Which one was that? It's just basically all of the defenders looking surprised as heck. Yeah, there's a couple panels in a row. There's one panel where it's the Hulk, Namor, and Son of Satan. Being like, whoa! Uh And then there's another one where it is Steve, Gargoyle, Valkyrie, Clea, Devil Slayer, and the Silver Surfer going, Zah! All of them mouths totally agape. Mm Mm-hmm. Eyebrows sky high. (laughs) They are stupefacted. Yeah. Open mouth stupefaction. Mm -hmm. That is a heck of a panel. I really enjoyed that one, too. On the previous page, we have Tantrum Steve. Which I really like. I actually also had that too. I called it Steve totally losing it. <laughs> he <He's>, really is. Sticking <laughs> little fists. He's got his fists balled up and he's just like, I should have known it, curse it, I should have known it. <laughs> he's so upset. He's like when a little kid doesn't even remember what they're mad about anymore. Uh-huh. They're just mad that they're mad. It's like infant Steve, baby. Angry. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It's a very fun panel. Yeah. We already talked about it at length, but I loved the Queen Clea panel. I loved the Devil's Dive Bar. That whole scene was so fun. That was really as close as we got to having goofy-ass demons in this. Yep. And I really appreciated seeing them. And the little skull-studded arm garter was just such a nice touch in that. And there were a lot of little details like that in that panel that I really appreciated. There's a panel that I called Three for the Void, which is when we first see... Clea, Silver Surfer, and Valkyrie floating through the ether. It's just really nicely drawn. There's so much negative space on that page that is really refreshing for your eyeballs, but is also done in a way that makes sense. Yeah. I loved the Devil's Merry-Go-Round, where he's just trying his best to be a good weekend dad to Damon. But ultimately, I think I gotta go with the Devil's Dive Bar. I think that was just my favorite. It was just such a fun scene. That's fair. Now, Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were 
the Hulk's rules. And a couple, the first one, which I, I think I abandoned, was something that the Hulk learned from the Silver Surfer. And that's this idea of self-deprecation being the most useless of endeavors. Yeah. Which, okay, I get it. Like, don't be too hard on yourself. But there is some value in it. There is some value in self-reflection, I think. But self-deprecation, specifically voicing your self-deprecation, it's something that I've had to work on because I think we both grew up in a generation where that's just what cool counterculture humor was. A lot of it was based Mm. on. And so you have a lot of self-deprecating jokes. And it took me a long time to realize that really all they do is make people very uncomfortable. Yeah, that's a good point. So, like a dummy, I didn't go with that one. (laughs) (laughs) But the one that I did wind up going with, which is uh, central to the debate we were having around who is the best offender, Mm -hmm. is there are very rare instances the Hulk learned from Steve when it may be okay to break the rules or lie, but only do it if you've got a really keen understanding of what the consequences might be. And he learned that because in this situation, Steve did not have that, and he made a choice that lost him a member of the Defenders and a friend. Yeah, that's what you get for writing shitty free verse. (laughs) You know, like, if you understand the rules of poetry, then it means something when you break them. But if you don't know what the rules are and you're just going at it willy-nilly... You're going to end up with shitty free verse, and you're going to end up with Damien Hellstrom going on a road trip with his evil dad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a very good lesson that the Hulk learned. The lesson that I had him learning relates to that also. It actually is more or less the same lesson. I just phrased it slightly differently. It's a very popular song, maybe you've heard of it, called The Gambler. Uh-huh. They made, I believe, seven movies out of it. <laughs> it's a three-minute song. Damn. Yeah, I haven't seen any of them. I kind of need to, I think. But the most famous lyric from that is, you gotta know when to hold them, know when to fold them. Uh-huh. Know when to walk away, know when to run. Sure. Never count your money when you're sitting at the table. Uh-huh. Time enough for counting when the dealing's done. Of course. But what leads into that is, if you're gonna play the game, boy, you gotta learn to play it right. Steve entered into a contest where the rules were completely unclear. And you should never do that. And you should especially never do that when you are betting heavily on that game, which is what Steve did. And the Hulk listened to that Kenny Rogers song, and he probably watched a couple of the movies at least. And uh, yeah, he knew that if you're going to play the game, boy, you got to learn to play it right. And Steve didn't as a result. Sorry, Damon. Dang, this may be the first time where our Hulk's rules were basically the same lesson. I feel like that's happened before, but also I don't remember anything we've ever said on this show, so... I have that, too. Yeah. Yeah. Thank goodness. (laughs) It's what makes life possible. Here's Here's to forgetting a hundred more. (laughs) Well, Corey, I have one final question I need to put to you. Okay. In the year of our Lord, 1981, and the month of our Lord, October, what Wong doings was Wong? doing so wong and steve had grown tired of the chilly fall weather on the eastern seaboard decided to uh take a little road trip and escape some of the cold they found themselves in los angeles california Mm. and uh you know took in some music uh we're having a good time there and decided to drive around a little bit more and explore the area and they had a stopover in costa mesa which is about 40 miles southeast of la 
it was there that I decided to stop for the night, have a few drinks, went to a place called the Shamrock, which is coincidentally the oldest bar in town, been there since the 1800s. And it sometimes happens, Steve really got into those Brandy Alexanders, as he does, mm. all hopped up on brandy and cream, <laughs> cream to cacao, you know, <laughs> a real good mix, drunk as shit. Mm-hmm. So Wong's like, oh, geez, I'm going to get Steve back to the hotel. And he's trying to escort him out. And Steve gets into his head that it would just be really funny to go hide from Wong and pushes him away and takes off running, giggling, zigzagging down the street. Wong's running after him. It's like, damn it, Steve, we got to get back to the room. We have to leave tomorrow. And he was unsuccessful. Wong couldn't find him. Oh, no. Steve had found his way into some airfield. He had read earlier this article about those tiny, like, uh, sleeping cubicle hotels in Tokyo Mm. and found what he thought was one of those, but it turned out it was actually the basket of a hot air balloon. Oh, no. (laughs) And he crawled into that thing and passed out. He was quite surprised, as were pilots John Shoecraft and Fred Gorel of a hot air balloon called the Super Chicken 3, when... Good name. Yeah. Flying over the country... Steve awoke, and it turns out that he is super acrophobic, which he wouldn't know, right, because he's flying around all the time, he's teleporting and stuff, but also super hungover. Yeah, you have that many drinks with that much sugar in them, that's kind of a foregone conclusion. It is a bad scene. So he just sort of, like, snapped into this trance of, like, can't crash, can't crash, can't crash. And that's why the Super Chicken 3 was the uh, first balloon to cross the U.S. without stopping. Oh my! Yeah. It took about 55 hours, and they <laughs> landed in Georgia, and uh, Wong was pretty pissed off when he got a call from Steve, who was like, hey, I'm too tired to teleport, can you come pick me up in Georgia? And, oh, dear. Uh, that's uh, one of the things that Wong was up to. Wow. Well, that may have been one thing that Wong was up to in October of 1981, but it wasn't the only thing that he and Steve were doing. See... After he recovered from that hangover and balloon trip, Steve decided to take a little victory lap of the United States to celebrate what a good, good job he did saving the world. Mm. He was a little bit, frankly, annoyed that no one else was making a big deal about what a good, good job he did saving the world. So he decided to see what he could do to rectify that situation. First up, he decided to uh, attend a playoffs baseball game in. Oakland, California. The New York Yankees were playing the Oakland Athletics, and he saw the camera panned over to his section of the baseball field, and there was a close-up of Steve. They tried to do the kiss cam thing for Han Wong, but Wong was like, no, no, sorry. (laughs) There are limits to how far my employment goes here. But when Steve saw his face up there, he's like, everybody really should stand up for me. So he zazzed everybody and made them stand up real quick. But he was still tired from his cross-country balloon trip and hangover, so he couldn't make the whole stadium stand up at once. So he had it, like, just as a rolling thing that went around, and uh, that is why there was the first ever, in a sporting event, wave, where the audience simulates a wave by standing up and raising their hands over their head. It was because Steve wasn't able to make them all give him the standing ovation he was hoping for, and then they were like, oh, this looks kind of cool and is fun, and we're not paying enough attention to the game, frankly. Um, <laughs> so that was where the wave was born. The credit was taken by a man named Crazy George Henderson, I believe, who was a professional cheerleader, but really it was Steve. 
After they left, Steve was feeling kind of down again. But then he saw something that perked him up. He saw that there had been a film that was made, which was celebrating, he assumed, the fact that he had once and for all vanquished the forces of darkness. He read it as a headline. Evil dead! And he assumed that that, that was going to be, well, thanks to Steve, evil's dead now. We won't have to be worrying about that. So he went in and he saw the premiere on October 16th of the film Evil Dead, and boy, he was disappointed. Not only because it was not about him, but because it was very scary. He got yeah. spooked real good. Yeah. People forget the first movie. It was pretty, pretty scary. scary. Yeah. The second movie is where they bring in more of the slapstick, but yeah. uh, for a low-budget film, it was a real spook em up And so Steve was not feeling great about himself at this point. He hadn't been able to get the standing ovation that he wanted. Turned out that that movie was not a documentary about him vanquishing the forces of darkness once and for all. Not even close. And so he was feeling pretty glum. So Wong decided to cheer him up. He went out and bought him the latest issue of Cream, the music review magazine. And he saw on the cover that there was his name in big letters, Stephen Strange. And he thought, finally, the recognition I deserve. I'm not even going to read this article. And it's a good thing he didn't, because it was actually an interview with the musician who went by the stage name Stephen Strange. It was a Welsh pop star by the name of Stephen Harrison, who was interviewed in Cream, and his name appeared on the cover of the October 1981 issue of Cream magazine. Wong felt pretty good about being able to cheer Steve up. And that's the Wong doings that Wong was doing in October of 1981. Wow, that is something. Yeah. Quite a journey he went on. Indeed. Quite a journey you went on to <laughs> figure all that out. Thank you. And thank you for covering this double-sized 100th issue of The Defenders with me. We will be back next week where we will cover another New Teen Titans issue, where we'll see what that darned wildebeest is up to with his GNU crew. That's what I decided to call his, uh, uh, his pals there. Uh-huh. GNU crew? Yeah. He really should have called them that. But he didn't, because he's the fucking worst. He's pretty bad. Yeah. Not bad meaning good. No, no, bad meaning bad. Mm -hmm. Not bad meaning good. Yeah. He's not like the big bad wolf in your neighborhood. (laughs) No. No. If you'd like to get into touch with us, you can do so by reaching us at ttwasteland at gmail.com, or you can mail us stuff at Tighten Up the Defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. We're also up on the social media you know, to Twitter, to Tumblr, the Facebook, to all those places. I say things on there sometimes. Sometimes it's about comic books. Sometimes it isn't. Nobody knows for sure. But Twitter is where we do the Battle of the Band Name polls. So you can check us out there. And uh, we did have a few people tweet at us with the hashtag Ziggy Thick, didn't which we? I appreciate. I think we had one. But still, <laughs> one is some. Is it? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not a math guy. No, me neither. Anyway, if you can't find us on social media, there is one more place that you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. We'll be in there. We always have been in there. Having a good time. Me? I'm going to be wondering what lava tastes like. It's probably not great. Sure looks good, though. Corey, what are you up to? Oh, geez. Well, other than being concerned for your esophageal safety... I'm probably not going to eat any lava, Corey. If I do, I'm not going to do it inside people's hearts. I, I don't want to jeopardize their safety. I was, I was hoping. 
Okay. Well, I'm that's curious. Good. Okay. Then, in that case, I'm probably watching one of the seven Gambler movies. We really should do that. We should watch one Gambler movie. <laughs> Not the first one. Oh, you think it's like pancakes? Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Or watch the second Gambler movie based on the song. We should do that. All right. That sounds fun. Yeah. If you would like to support the show monetarily, maybe uh, pay for that Gambler 2 rental, you can check us out on patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. Uh, I've put up videos recently about an issue of Thor that was drawn by Wayne Boring in the late 70s, which I didn't know had been a thing. Talked about the supervillain team-up, which is a fun will-they-won't-they story between Doctor Doom and Namor. And, yeah, there's a ton of video reviews of comic books up there. There is also the monthly podcast that I co-host with my wife, Lisa, What the Duck, a podcast most foul, but with a W, because he's a duck, that's the full name of the show. There are about 30 or so episodes of that that are up there exclusively for our donors. So if you want to check that stuff out, then uh, go over to Patreon and see what's there. Your donations really do mean a heck of a lot to me. I very much appreciate them, and... Uh, Thank you so much. If you would like to support the show in a non-monetary manner, Corey, what's a way people can do that? You could leave a review wherever you get your podcast from. Sure, that's always a good idea. Yeah, ideally it's a nice review. Yeah, if you don't like the show, then you should leave us a sarcastic five-star review. That would really put us in our places. That's a real zinger. Oh, boy. I... Like, don't even say anything just right Five stars. Yeah, yeah, but like write it like maybe in italics. We'll know. Yeah. It'll it'll hurt us real bad if if it just says five stars. What a great podcast. Oof. Oof. Yeah. Gosh. But if you like the show, conversely, you could just write what a great podcast. Five stars. Yeah. That would warm the cockles of my heart. Yep. So you got options, is what I'm saying. Uh, another thing you could do is is just talk to people. You know. Yeah. It could be electronically on the internet mm -hmm. or just face to face. You yeah. Know? Hey, I heard a thing. Made me giggle. It felt good to giggle. It it does feel good to giggle. Uh-huh. Just go out there and shine the light of reason on these people into the darkness of their ignorance about tighten up the defense. Yeah, stop fighting wars. <laughs> yeah, just go roll up on a group of soldiers drawn from every war in the history of human conflict uh -huh. and be like, you guys, why the fuck are you doing what that big devil-looking guy tells you to do? Uh -huh. Instead, why not listen to uh, Tighten Up the Defense? Yeah, it's a good time. Boy, Satan crying would fold his wings uh, if he heard that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He'd turn himself into a... Peace. What's the opposite of a pig? Oh, I don't. It doesn't work that way. No, it's not an opposite of a pig. I don't think animals have opposites. Like a pine cone. <laughs> yep. It's like the opposite of a pig. They're dissimilar in almost every way. Well, they both have the letter P and I. Well, yeah. Okay, they're in their names. Okay. In English. Okay. Then shovel. Shovel the opposite of a pig. Guess he can't eat. <laughs> Shovel. Exactly. All right. So, peace shovel. Be the opposite of a war pig. <laughs> yep. All right. We'll be back soon. Until next time, be a peace shovel, not a war pig. Bye. 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 <laughs>
for us all i just really shown the light of reason into the darkness you are of their ignorance nothing if not reasonable that's what i've always said at top volume at all times actually you had a sign in your house that said i reserved the right to be unreasonable i did yeah. i don't even remember that that's a good thing to reserve the right to do <laughs> yep good for me did i have any context for it did i just write it on a piece of paper uh, I feel like it was next to the Mr. T poster where he put the tape over his eyes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 